This is the city of David, the place where David's downfall began. This palace offered what seemed to be luxurious views, but in the end, it played a part in his fatal mistake. Being in the wrong place at the wrong time is never a recipe for success. And for the king, he allowed his position and his power to completely blind him to his vulnerability. Good morning and welcome to Northridge Church. I want to welcome our campuses at Webster, Greece, Henrietta, Aranda, Coit, those of you who are watching with us online and all of our guests here this morning. And one audience that we don't pay a lot of attention to uh, at in our church, but an audience I want to celebrate this morning is our online audience. You might not know this, you probably don't know this, but just this last week we had over 800 people joining us online to watch one of our services. And maybe that's you this morning. You're joining us online. Some of you are our Northridge family. You're away on a trip, engaging with us or your kids are homesick. Thanks for uh, still engaging with us. But for many of you, you live in the Rochester area, and I'd encourage you to check out one of our campuses, really solely for the purposes we want to have a relationship with you. We want to we want to get to know you. We want to shake your hand, and so I'd encourage you to do that. But thanks for engaging with us online. Welcome to Northridge Church to every single person. And we've been in this series called Portraits of a King, where we're really diving into King David's life, circumstances in his life, and up to this moment, up to this time, David has been really a godly man. We've seen the good in David's life. In fact, the last place we left David off, he, he was faced with this opportunity. He was able to kill the, the king that was chasing him, trying to kill him. But we, we saw that he was marked by five leadership categories. And his integrity would not allow him to take Saul's life. And this morning, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and jump there. 2 Samuel 11 is going to be on page 247 in the Northridge Bible. You can turn to page 40 in your booklets, or you can jump in the app uh, or use your program to take notes. And really, we're, we're making a, a, a jump in David's life. You see, we left him off in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and now we're jumping to 2 Samuel chapter 11. And there's been some events that have taken place in David's life that I want to catch you up to, to speed. You see, David has been anointed to be the next king of Israel, but he's been waiting and waiting and waiting, and now he has become the next king of Israel. Saul has died, his leadership is over, God removes him, and now David is king leading an entire nation. And up to this point, to 2 Samuel chapter 11, David has been a godly king. He's been a wise king. All the things that we've seen in David in this series were true about his leadership as king. He's, he's expanded the, the nation of Israel's territory through military campaigns. And everything that David has done has been blessed by God because he's been a godly king. But what we're going to find out in this story this morning is that all can change. Because one choice can change the course of your life. One simple choice can change the trajectory of all of our lives. It doesn't take a, a bunch of choices. You see, over the course of time, that's what happens. But one choice can literally change the direction or the course of your life. And it can be in a good way or it can be in a bad way. And we're going to find this true to be in David's life this morning. But, you know, one simple choice 
to sign up for a gym, gym membership can literally change the course of your, your healthy lifestyle. One choice to, to forgive somebody who has done you wrong can change the health of your life. But it also can be true in the negative. One choice to take a hit of that drug can literally steer your life in a completely different direction. One choice to, to respond to a text message or have a conversation that you know you shouldn't have can lead you down a path that you never wanted to go. It only takes one wrong turn to get to the wrong place. And we're going to find this to be true in David's life this morning. And what I've done with 2 Samuel chapter 11 is I've really broken it down into four segments. Four segments that we're going to look at. And the first one is called the choice. The choice that changed the trajectory of David's life. And we find that choice right at the very beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 11 verse 1. It says this. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war... David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So here's the choice David makes. It says, in the springtime, flowers are blooming. And this was the time where armies would go off to war. And it was the king's responsibility to lead the nation in war. That was one of his main job requirements, one of his things in his job description, lead the nation into war. And David makes this conscious choice for some reason, the text doesn't tell us, but he makes some conscious choice to stay home, to stay in Jerusalem. And so the first question we might ask is, is why? Why would David do this when he's supposed to be somewhere else? Why would he choose to stay? Some people might say, well, David was, was tired of military campaigns. He needed a break. We know in chapter 10, he was fighting the Ammonites. He's been expanding the kingdom of, of Israel through war. And so maybe he needed a break. But the, the first verse gives us this, this alludes to this fact that they just had a break. You see, winter was the time where they would stop war, take a break, let their, their, their armies gather and, and go back to their families. And springtime was when they led back into war. And so David just had a break. So why in the world would David stay home? Well, one thing we do know is David's choice led him to have time on his hands. You see, his job requirement may, said, hey, you need to be at war. But for some reason, David stayed. And so... Knowing that his job wanted him there, David had a lot of time on his hands. He's in the palace. All of his army and his leaders are gone. And so David is sitting around the palace. We're not sure what he's doing, but we know this. He probably had some time, time to think, maybe time to plan. And you know what I've found to be true about time? It's one of the most dangerous places. We're going to find this true to be in David's life and in our lives. Is one of the most dangerous places to be spiritually is a place of idle time, boredom. Because boredom leads us to poor choices. Boredom leads us to do things that we probably wouldn't do. In fact, idle time is the devil's playground. Idle time is the devil's playground. You see, when we're bored, when we have time on our hands with nothing else to do, it's a perfect opportunity for our enemy to sweep in and to whisper things in our minds and in our bodies. You know, I've seen idle time wreck people. I've seen idle time lead people to go to websites they should never be on. I've seen idle time lead people to gossip about somebody else because they had nothing else to talk about. 
I've seen idle time lead people to worry. Worry about their kids, their future, the bills they got to pay. Worry about all kinds of things that I don't have a spouse or not. Idle time, I I don't got anything else to do, so I might as well worry. Idle time leads people to guilt and comparison because, hey, when we don't have anything to do in, in, in our culture and in our society today, what do we do? We scroll through social media and we see people's life. We see their, 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 their highlights and we compare our life to theirs. Well, I'm not the mother she is or I'm not the dad he's supposed to be. Or I'm not the husband or the wife or I don't have a husband. And we, we, we live in guilt because we have time on our hands and we compare our lives to other people. And here David is with idle time. And it's going to lead him to a place that probably he never thought he would go. But the second thing we see here is often our sin is predictable. Our sin is often predictable because you can see from just the very first verse of this passage, David is where he doesn't belong. He should be somewhere else and he finds himself in a place that he doesn't belong. And you can almost predict what's going to happen next. And isn't that true about our lives? I mean, we've seen people getting, making poor choice after poor choice, and, and we know where it leads. We almost said, hey, it's not that big of a deal, because I saw it coming. But I also think our sin is predictable, but I also think it's premeditated a lot of times. You see, I think a lot of cases in our lives, is we choose sin. We plan it out. We strategize so we can indulge in that sin. And personally, the text doesn't say this. This is my opinion about the story. But I think David knew exactly what he was doing when he stayed home from war. He knew all of his men would be away, the the soldiers, the army would be away, and I believe David had a plan that he was getting ready to unfold. And so we see the second category of the segment of this passage. I like to call it the temptation. The temptation. This is where David is going to be tempted. You find it in verse 2. It says, one evening... David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. So David, with his idle time, with his boredom, he's roaming around the the, the palace, the roof of the palace, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing. And again, I don't believe this was the first time David saw this woman I think this was, he, he saw her multiple times with led to his lust to make the decisions he's making. That's not what the text says, that's just my opinion. And so here David is, he sees this woman bathing and he sends a servant out to find out who she is. And I think every single one of us, we can relate to David because we've been at a place in our life where we've been on the cusp of making a really bad decision. That's where David is. He's on the cusp of doing something really stupid. And I think we all have have been in in that moment, maybe not when it comes to adultery, but when it just comes to choices in life. We've been on the cusp of sin. We're getting ready to sin. You know what I love about those moments in our life is God is faithful in those moments. God is faithful. In fact, this is what the Bible says about those moments. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Man, praise Jesus for that. When I'm stupid, God's still faithful. 
And here David is being stupid. And, and here's what we have to, to, to recognize is that when we're in those moments, when we're on the cusp, God always provides a way out for us. God is always faithful to provide a way out to, to, to escape the, 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 the bondage of sin. He always gives us that way out. And sometimes that way out comes from a text message. Sometimes it comes from our friend telling us we're being stupid. Sometimes that, that way out is just a Bible verse popping into our head. But for David, this is what it looked like. It says, David sends a servant, and this is the report he gives back. It says, the man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. And oftentimes I think we would read that in the Bible and just say, hey, that's information. We're now understanding who this woman is. But to me, I think this is the very voice of God through this servant screaming out to David, David, she's married. David, she doesn't belong to you. David, stop while you're still ahead. She's the wife of Uriah. Now understand, Uriah wasn't just some random name David wouldn't have grasped. This wasn't some stranger. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. Uriah was a, a man who fought and was faithful to David over and over again. He was one of his best soldiers. And so when David hears this, the, the name Uriah should ring a bell in his head. God is screaming out, this is one of your good friends who stayed faithful to you, David. Don't do it. Wake up, David. But David had a choice to make. And so he made it. Verse 4, it says, Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. And so David has his fun. He calls Bathsheba to his house, he sleeps with her, and he sends her on her way. And probably for David, he thought, hey, that's the end of it. Like, I got what I wanted, my lust was fulfilled. Bathsheba might have had a good time too, and they go on their separate ways. And David probably thought, hey, that's the end of it. Bathsheba, you go back to being Uriah's wife, I'll go being, back to being king, let's just kind of forget about it. Never happened. And isn't that what we do with our sin? I mean, honestly, we're just like David. We, we step into sin and we indulge in it. And, it, and sin is, is fun. Sin is exciting. It's, 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 it's appealing to us. If it wasn't, we wouldn't want it. But that's what we do with our sin is we think, hey, I'll just indulge in this sin. And, you know, it'll be like 30 minutes to an hour, a one-night stand or whatever it is that we like. And we jump into it and then we leave it and we think, oh, I'll go back to being a good Christian. No big deal. No one will ever know. And that was David's plan until he heard those words, I'm pregnant, David. And those words probably rocked his world because here's the problem. You would think, okay, in, in this culture, there's, there's no technology to know whose baby it is. We could just blame Uriah. The problem is, is Uriah has been fighting in a war where David should have been. There's no way it could have been Uriah's baby. And so David has a problem. Uriah's wife's pregnant, and there is no excuse for Bathsheba. So David figures, oh, okay, well, I'm going to step into this third segment of the story. I'm going to cover it up, the cover-up. So David begins to lie to people to cover up his sin. Verse 6, it says this, So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab 
sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. And so David has a problem here, and he's like, hey, this is solved easily. I'll just bring Uriah back, send him to his wife. They can have sex, and hey, all my problems are solved. And so he sends word to Joab, the commander of Israel. He says, send me Uriah. Uriah comes to the kingdom. David shoots the breeze with him. He's like, how's war going, David? How's things? How's the battle? Hey, why don't you go home? Go home to be with your wife. And, you know, David's a smart guy. He strategically sends a gift basket. You know, there's probably some candles, some bubble bath, you know. (laughs) I don't know what was in there. Your mind could race pretty far if you wanted to. The problem is, is Uriah doesn't go home. Uriah stays at the palace, the entrance of the palace, and he sleeps. And so David's like, what's going on? What's happening here? And so verse 10, it says, David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's army, my Lord's men are camped in open country. How can I go to the house and eat and drink and make, life, make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. And man, those words must have just slapped David right in the face. Because here Uriah is saying to David, he doesn't know this, but he's saying, David, I won't be you. You're supposed to be at war, David, and I'm home from war, and the last thing I'm going to do when my men are fighting a battle in tents, getting ready to wage war, the last thing I'm going to do, David, is I'm going to go home and sleep with my wife and eat and be merry. And man, those words must have just hit David in the heart because David didn't just stay home from war. He didn't just stay home and have sex with his wife. He stayed home from war and had sex with somebody else's wife. And you think this would wake David up. Like, hello, David, you're that dude. But it didn't. David's heart was so hardened by his sin. And again, I think we can, we can relate to David. Because maybe you haven't covered up the sin of adultery, but all of us at some point in our lives have tried to cover up our poor choices. We've tried to hide our decisions because at the end of the day, we don't want anybody to know them. And here's what I've discovered. When it comes to covering up sin, when it comes to hiding your sin and you don't want anybody to know, you want to fix your problem, so you try to cover it up, you try to find a solution. When we cover up our sin, the first person you lie to is you. When you cover up your sin, the first person you actually have to convince the cover-up is real is yourself. Because you have to convince yourself, David had to convince himself that what he did wasn't that big of a deal. He had to convince himself that he wasn't that bad of a person. And once he got that, it gave him the leverage. Once he convinced himself, it led him and gave him leverage to convince everybody else. And you see, when we cover up our sin, ultimately what we're saying is, hey, it wasn't that big of a deal. I'm not that bad of a person. And so here David is. He's trying to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, and so it's not working. So he ups his plan a little bit. Verse 12, it says, And David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David's invitation, at David's invitation, he ate and drank with him. And David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. And so David's thinking, okay, if Uriah's not going to go home, 
Here's the deal. I just get him smashed. Like, I would just get him so drunk, I'll, I'll give him some good food, we'll fellowship, I'll get him drunk, and I'll get him so drunk where he doesn't even know what he's doing, he'll go home and he'll just sleep with his wife. And here you get to see what kind of man Uriah was, is here Uriah is totally drunk, and he's still making more godly decisions than David, who's completely sober. <laughs> I mean, holy smokes, Uriah, that's pretty amazing. And David realizes... The first plan isn't working. Uriah is not going to go back and sleep with his wife. He's not. He's sleeping with his servants. That's the type of man Uriah was. And so David realizes he's got to up the ante. And isn't that where sin takes us? We try to cover it up the simple way, and it doesn't work. And so guess what it does? It makes us to up the ante. We've got to go a little bit farther in our sin. And this is what David does. It says, in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw from him and he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at the place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. And can you imagine the place David has to be to do something like this? I mean, it's one thing to, like, create a death sentence for somebody. <laughs> because that's essentially what David does. He writes a letter to the commander of Israel, and he says, I want Uriah to die. I mean, that's one thing. That's bad enough. You've got to be at a dark place to do that. But it's a whole other level when you write the letter and you give it to the guy who's going to die. Like, that's ridiculous. I mean, can you imagine at the place David is at where he's willing to say, kill this man, and oh, hey, uh, would you go deliver your death sentence to the, to the army? And, and again, you just see what kind of man Uriah was, the integrity he had. He didn't open the letter once. He could have easily said, I wonder what strategies we're going to take this week in battle. Oh, wait, I'm going to die. But he didn't. He took the letter the king gave him, and he was faithful to the king and delivered it to Joab. And some of us might ask, like, why would Joab do this? Well, he was following orders of the king. When the king said something, the commander did it. There was no options. Or he'd be the next in line in the flow with Uriah. And so here David is. He has Uriah killed. Not just Uriah, but other men in David's army. And David's probably at the place where, like, whew, that was close. Problem solved. Let's, let's leave it here, okay? Let's, I, I know I didn't want to do all that, but let's just end the story here. David can move on. His sin is covered up. And this is where we step into that fourth segment, the segment I call the consequences. And I think I, I want to bring us all back to this. I want us all to be reminded of this, that it doesn't matter the sin. Sin always comes with consequences. You, you can't avoid it. You, you can't get around it. Sin always comes with consequences. And here's the scary part. Here's the, here's the kind of scary part for all of us is we can choose our sin, but we can't choose our consequences. We can choose the sin that we indulge in, that we dive into. We can choose the sin that we want to be a part of. But at the end of the day, guess whose responsibility it is for the consequences? It's not ours. It's God's. And I want to show you just a little bit. Next week, we're going, to get, we're going to dive deep into the consequences of David's actions. But I want to show you just one of them. Verse 26, it says this. It says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. 
After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. And so you read that verse and you're like, wow, what consequences? Like David got exactly what he wanted. He got the girl. He killed the guy, got the girl. And not only did the girl, he got an heir to the kingdom. He got a son. I mean, in this culture, a son was a big deal. This was going to be the next king of Israel. He's the son. But look at the next line of the verse. It says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. And as Christians, that verse ought to rattle us. It ought to shake us. Because the last thing we should want to do is displease our Heavenly Father. But, but can, I, can I be real? I think for a lot of us, displeasing God doesn't really scare us that much. You know, I, it was just a sin. Oh, you displease God, that ah, ain't no big deal. If that's the worst thing that's going to happen to me with my sin, oh, wow, that's awesome. In fact, on the opposite end of the spectrum, ah, you know, we, we're not that worried about displeasing God. And I think probably for a lot of Christians, we're not really that excited or jazzed up about pleasing God. Even though the Bible makes it clear that that is our sole purpose in life. 2 Corinthians 5.9, it says, we make it our aim to please him. Do you know, if you're a Christian this morning, you've said yes to Jesus as your forgiver and your leader. Your purpose in life through whatever you do is to bring honor and glory and magnify your father in heaven. Please him. But how many of us get, get jazzed up and get excited? We wake up in the morning, man, I can't wait to please God today. Most of us are like, man, I just want to make it through the day. <laughs> just don't want to mess it up. And I'm afraid today in Christianity, displeasing God really isn't that big of a consequence to us. But you know what it is? Getting caught. That's what we fear the most. We don't want to be the person that gets caught like David, that's labeled the cheater, that's labeled the addict, that labels the liar. We, we, you know what we fear the most? That people might actually know the things that we are actually involved in. Do you want to know how I know that? Because I've lived it. I've lived it. You see, when I was 16 years old, I got caught up in an addiction that I should have never been involved in. I was looking at websites that no one should ever look at. And I was doing it on a regular basis. And so when I was 16 years old, it's one of the most defining moments in my life. I got caught by my parents. And it was one of the most embarrassing, awkward, weird moments of my life. I'd look my father and my mother in the eyes. And say, yeah, this is, this is me. This is what I've been up to. And it, it, it sucked. I was so embarrassed. And I thought that was going to be the worst thing that will ever happen to me in my life. But you want to know what crushed me even more? Was watching my mom for the next three days cry herself to sleep because she was so disappointed in me knowing that I displeased my mother and father. And I'm afraid today as Christians, we got to get back to the fact that when we sin, who cares about the, the pain and the suffering we might face? What should crush us the most is that we let down God. 
that we displeased our heavenly father. And I just don't think we're there in our culture today. And I want to bring us back to this main point. You see, the greatest consequence to our sin is a broken relationship with God. It doesn't get any worse than that. The greatest, worst part about sin is that it wreaks havoc, it jacks up, it messes up our relationship with God. Because a holy God cannot deal with sin. He can't, he's it's, it's too holy. Just go back to Adam and Eve for a second. The very beginning, the beginning of your Bible, Genesis chapter 3. The world was perfect, it was amazing. But Adam and Eve chose to be disobedient. They chose to sin. And guess what that did? It wreaked havoc on their life. It messed everything up, not just for their life, but for all of our lives. It's still wreaking havoc on our lives. Because that's what sin does. The worst thing about sin is not getting caught. We shouldn't fear getting caught. We should look forward to getting caught so God can bring into the light what's in the dark. And man, I'm telling you today, the worst thing about sin is it separates me from God. In fact, this is what the Bible says. Don't take my word for it. Isaiah 59 verse 2, it says, but your iniquities, that sin, have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Psalm 66, 18, if I cherish sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Man, right there should be enough for us to say no to sin. Because it wreaks havoc on our relationship with God. It puts us a barrier in between God and us where he can't hear us. And man, that's depressing. This story is depressing. Because it just honestly reminds us of us, me. Because I can put myself in David's shoes. I've made a ton of terrible decisions in life. I've made it, I've sinned enough. And what I hate about this story is David is me, and David is you. And it's depressing. Like, aren't you glad you came this morning? Hey, you're a terrible person. Woo! But I don't want to leave you there. Here's the great thing about sin. I know that sounds really like heresy. (laughs) But the great thing about sin, write this down. It's not in your notes. Sin can lead to a celebration. Your sin and my sin can lead to a celebration. In fact, let me show you that celebration. It's found in Romans 5, verse 8. It says this, but God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And man, if you're a Christian today, you should never read that verse without shouting amen and clapping and saying, thank you, Jesus. Because the Bible says, while you were still a drunk, while you were still addicted, while you were still lying, while you were still leaving your children, while you were still quitting on God, while you were still a sinner, broken, messed up, jacked up, God loved you enough to leave the splendor of heaven, to come to this earth, to go to a cross, and to be brutalized, and on the third day, rise again. So guess what? So you, through him, could overcome your sin. And here's the great news this morning. No, I think a lot of people don't come to church because they think, and, and sometimes the church portrays this, is we, 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 we might not say it, but we give this perception of Jesus to people where we say, hey, you come to church when you figure it out. You know, hey, we'll accept you when you change some things. 
And that's the very opposite of the gospel and what that verse says. You know, if you're here this morning and you're addicted to drugs, if you're here this morning and you're a liar, if you're here this morning and you're struggling in your marriage, can I tell you, you came to the best place you could possibly pick? Because here at the cross, Jesus accepts you as you are. He doesn't say, hey, fix it up. Hey, get it in order. He says, the only way you can is through me. So man, you came to the best place because we stand on the word of God and we believe in the message that while I was a sinner looking at porn, lying, stealing, God loved me enough to go to the cross and pay my sin. And he did the same thing for you. And we get to celebrate that. We get to revel in that. And we're going to do that this morning. We're just going to rejoice in what Jesus has done. We do that in church through a thing called communion, where we remember Jesus' blood that was shed for us and his body that was broken for us. And man, we just get to celebrate that. And if you're here this morning and, you know, you don't know Christ is your personal Savior, I just want you to know there's this barrier between you and God, and it's called sin. And there's no getting around it. You can't fix it. You can try as much as you want. You can't fix it. It's only by Jesus. The Bible says he's the, the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And maybe this morning you take communion for the very first time, knowing that you have a relationship with God. It's simple. Man, you just put your faith and trust. You say, God, I'm a sinner. <laughs> Join the club. We're all sinners. I'm a sinner, and I need forgiveness for my past, my present, and my future. And, and, and I believe what you did. I believe you died on the cross, and I believe you rose again for me. And will you come into my life? Will you be my forgiver and my leader? It's as simple as that. If you believe that in your heart and you confess that in your mouth, God will hear that prayer. And this morning, you can celebrate with us in communion of God rescuing you from your sin. But communion is for believers. It's for all of us to just look at the cross and look at the grave and look at the empty tomb and to celebrate, to rejoice. And so right now, volunteers at all of our campuses, they're gonna come forward and they're gonna begin to pass out a little cracker and a, a little thing of juice. And you know, as we look at this story, as we look at David's downfall, we look at how one choice changed the course of his life, I just think it would be unwise. I think it would be stupid not for all of us to just take a moment and really examine our lives, to think about what's there that doesn't please God. This is what David says at the very end of his life. The very end of his life, David writes in Psalms 139, he says this, he says, search me, God, and know my heart. And as Christians, we have to take sin seriously. I'm afraid we, we like to flirt with sin and we like to hang around sin. And I think this morning might be a reminder for some of us to take sin seriously and understand where sin leads us and where it takes us. And so this morning, as we begin a celebration, we wanna start by giving you an opportunity to search yourself, to look at your life and say, God, what, what's there? that doesn't belong? What's there that doesn't please you? I think for some, someone today, this might be that way out that God provides. <laughs> You're on the cusp of making a really bad decision. 
You're on the cusp of walking away from your marriage. You're on the cusp of of stepping into a relationship you don't belong in. You're on the cusp of dating someone you shouldn't. You're on the cusp of making a really poor decision. And maybe this is God's way out for you, this moment where you examine your life and you say, God, if there is anything in you and in me that doesn't please you, please remove it, help me overcome it. In fact, we're gonna give you that opportunity to search yourself right now.